the beauty of the subscription model is you bake the relationship with the customer into how you're making money. If I had a relationship with you, I had the maintenance plan or subscription plan or services plan, I think of you as my sheet metal guy, my electrician. I built this company called ProfitWell. What we do is we help subscription businesses. We recently sold. I think it's worth saying the value that you sold that business for. We sold for over $200 million. Is there anything in particular that you take inspiration on that you would recommend others go off and read or watch? The one book, and I think it actually is really helpful for folks in the trades or running trades businesses, is... This week, we welcomed Patrick Campbell to the podcast, CEO and founder of ProfitWell, which he recently sold for a whopping $200 million. Patrick brings unique insights into managing teams, and provides really actionable advice on how to create and manage recurring revenue streams in your business. We've separated the full interview into chapters, so if you hover over the time bar, you can skip to the section you want to learn more about. This podcast is sponsored by Payaka, the software that helps you sell more, organize your team, and save hours of time. Right, let's get into it. Welcome, Patrick. It's uh, great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think like we were just having a brief chat before, and I think there's a lot we want to talk about, but a lot of our audience are not going to know who you are. Um, it's great. It's a good humbling ego experience. I like it. Yeah. So I'd love to start with a bit of a introduction to like who is Patrick, like what's your background, and, and yeah. how have you got to where you are today, and what do you do? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, great. Like where do, where do I start? Especially for, um, I'm big in the software game. That's, that's what everyone should know. Right. No, uh, I, um, so my background is, uh, so I grew up in Wisconsin in the, the Midwest and the States, um, farmland, you know, more cows than people, uh, very blue collar family. That's why I was kind of excited to have this conversation because my, my dad is, uh, you know, he, he was a union tinner, did a lot of like roofing, um, in like the high rises of Milwaukee area and then, um, ended up, uh, going back to school and, you know, becoming an HVAC guy. Uh, and so he did that for, for another, you know, the second part of his career, his second career there and got a whole family full of, you know, electricians, uh, bricklayers, all kinds of things. And so I'm, I'm the, I'm the odd one out. I'm the black sheep that, you know, was the college kid, which, you know, in a, in a trades family is, uh, is, is the thing that they want, you know, they want their kids to try to go to college, you know, to, to, you know, climb the, the, the old middle-class ladder there. But I was definitely the, the one that was made fun of for being the smart kid, but, uh, that's the, the deep background. I, my, my kind of professional background is in econometrics and math. Um, I started my career. Um, I worked in the U.S. intelligence community um, for for my first job in working for the U.S. government. Uh, then I worked at Google, um, and then I joined in kind of the startup fray. And I built this company called ProfitWell, which what we do is we help subscription businesses, uh, both you know B two B, which might be a phrase listeners have heard. Those are basically software businesses that sell to other businesses uh, like Payaka, and then um, you know to 
everyone from, you know, media sites, you know, so, you know, not the New York Times, New York Times is not a, not a customer of ours, but, you know, like a New York Times or a Wall Street Journal, um, all the way to, you know, like Lyft and Uber, like their subscription businesses and stuff like that. So we help them basically give them free analytics. Uh, and then, uh, we, we make money by, um, selling them products that help with their pricing and also help with their retention. So keeping their customers from canceling over time. And, uh, it's kind of funny. My dad, doesn't fully understand it, but there's a there's an HVAC software product that basically does what our free product did, gives you a lot of analytics when you kind of hook it into into uh, his tooling, and then you know they're they're kind of doing almost the same thing we did. I'm I'm sure there there isn't any inspiration there, but uh, yeah. And then my career has been been you know it's been it's been great. I think my parents freaked out every step I made because I went from a guaranteed job with the government to working for one of the best companies, at least, you know, on paper in the world with Google in terms of how they treat employees to a venture back startup to starting a company with, with no funding. So I bootstrapped our company and then we recently sold, um, last year for, for a good sum of money. So it was, you know, very similar to a lot of trades business. I didn't have a loan. I didn't have any money. I had to, you know, build the business from, from, you know, basically investment from my customers, you know, which is, which is, you know, one of the better businesses to build, I think. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's worth saying because it's public, isn't it? Like what the value yeah. that you sold that business for, like. Yeah, yeah, we sold we sold for over two hundred million dollars. So, yeah, I, I I didn't want to say that on a trades podcast because I didn't want to I would I didn't want them to think I'm a big timer now. I still wear my Carhartt. <laughs> I wear it unironically. Like the other half of this room is actually a whole tool chest of me trying to you know gain my father's approval by uh, being a little carpenter here. But uh, yeah, I think it's um. Yeah, it just you know, obviously a different path and a very, you know, blessed path. But uh yeah, that's that's kinda kinda the the background. And and so why did you start in the in intelligence? Um Um so my dad was also and, and other folks in the extended family um were in the military. Um so my father was a reservist. Um I don't know. I know a lot of Europe audience, but the U.S. audience, he was a CB. So these CBs were this uh, naval construction battalion, basically kind of similar to the Army Corps of Engineers. But the CBs were um, an outfit that during, I believe, World War II is when it started. There's a there's like one John Wayne movie about the CBs back in the day. Don't worry, I've watched it a thousand times. So basically what what they did is they they realized a lot of these recruits um, didn't have the skills to build bases to build things because, you know, you, like the beauty of the trades, it's the skilled trades, right? Like, it's not like, you know, you can just be a carpenter one day and you're good or a bricklayer or an HVAC person. You have to develop those skills. And so what the U.S. Uh, government realized is they they would start to go into union halls when the unions were, were much stronger in the U.S. And I think they're going to come back a bit um, in a different form right now. But they went to the union halls and basically would find these, you know, 30, 40, 50 year old guys, mostly guys, and, you know, recruit them because they needed someone to come and like build the runways, build the bases, those types of things. And so he joined that when I, when he was in his thirties, he retired as a senior chief. Um, and I don't know, the military was always like a thing. I, I didn't, I couldn't go into the military. Um, I probably could have figured it out, but I, I, I didn't, it wasn't like a thing that I wanted to do, but going into the U S intelligence community, um, you know, it was kind of like a tangential thing. Like I've always, you know, you know, for, for country and for hopefully doing net good in the world. I know it's not always good, but it's net good. I think, um, you know, was, it was kind of a thing. And then honestly working for the government, I was like, it's so bureaucratic, like it's so bureaucratic. And I'm, I'm kind of like a speed guy. Like I like, I like like pushing. I mean, this is how my, my dad was on a job too. He was very like, 
like, let's stop talking. Let's get working. Right. Like fun to us on the weekends was, oh, we're going to redo the basement. Oh, we're going to build this. We're going to, you know, mow the lawn, that type of a thing. So it was a very like initiative type, um, you know, practice. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of why I went into it. I was recruited as well. And so I, I was going to go try and save the world. And then it was so bureaucratic that I left and I became what my father hates management. I became corporate management. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's, that's kind of the backstory there. What do you think you got out of that? Like, what, what did you, do you, if you take stuff out of that, that's, or is it all just, oh, like, it's just one of the most, no, one of the most fulfilling jobs I'll, I'll ever have. Um, even, you know, building a company and taking care of a team and stuff like that. Like, I mean, you, the cycles on helping were rather quick. So there's, there's some jobs that you get exposed to where it's like, there is, there is literally a thing that needs to be figured out within a day, because if we don't figure it out in a day, this person, you know, might die or this person invades or this thing happens. So just seeing that, not always even being involved with it, just seeing it, you felt like you're a part of this like thing to help. And then even the longer projects, like everything's like, you know, it's not quite a dichotomy of like good versus bad, but presumably everything's like we're trying to like help the folks who you know want freedom want democracy these types of things different flavors right like uk is a little bit different than the us you know and, and very different in a lot of ways but like you know you're, you're trying to help that versus you know i was there kind of on i don't think it was like the tail end of like the middle eastern um pieces is probably kind of like towards the middle and um yeah like there's bad people out there you know like and you know, some people, some bad people, they're maybe not as bad as, you know, maybe a media like spins, but there are bad people out there. And, you know, if we can help, um, and you can be a part of that, it's really fulfilling, but I don't know. It was, it was one of those things where, um, when you get in there to speak of the bureaucracy, um, if you can put up with that, the fulfillment keeps going. And I like to talk about my job. Um, so that was another thing. Like you can't really talk about your job. Um, my job is such a part of my identity. Like it's, it's a, you know, it's a career, it's a, it's a craft, even though it's not a skilled trade, like that's how I approach it. And so, um, I think that's a, that's a big thing that, you know, is, is hard is like, if my job's such a part of my identity and I come home and I can't talk about it or I can't really research it or these types of things, like it's a little bit tougher, but the, the bureaucracy was a lot. Like, um, there were people, just to give you an anecdote, um, one of my, my mentors internally, um, you know, he made a joke one day and, and I didn't, he said, oh yeah, she's this, this person who's on our team. Like, you know, they've, they've, you know, been here for you know 20 years. They haven't done anything in 10. And I, I thought it was just kind of like a, you know, kind of like a side comment joke, but it was like, no, seriously, like this person can't be fired. Like just cause it's the government, you know, you can't really fire that type of thing. So yeah, when that was happening, being a young punk kid, you know, when wanting things to go fast, it was, uh, it was time to, to move on. And, you know, I went and got, um, you know, got into the Google kind of hiring framework and went there and did, uh, something called sales operations and sales. So sales, most people know sales operations is like, how do you make a sales team better? Basically. Mm. So it was, it was about managing people. That was it for Google. Oh, I wasn't, no, I wasn't managing people. It was more like sales operations is more like your sales team. Like, let me give a basic example. Your sales team uh, got 10 customers this month. How do we, how do we help them with the same amount of salespeople get 20 customers the next month or 15 or something like that? So think of like, um, you got a job, you're doing, um, you know, you're installing a roof or you're, you know, laying brick for a wall. Like you got, 
two bricklayers on it and they're able to put up six feet of wall. I had no idea of making these numbers up. Please don't make fun of me. Uh, but you're putting six layer, six, six feet of wall up, um, across a day. Well, can we make, can we give them another tool or can we make them more efficient? So the same two bricklayers can put up nine feet, right? That's what like a sales operations person would do is just try to think through. And sometimes it's as simple as like, you know, Oh, they just need this, one sheeter. They just need literally this PDF that has this information on it. Um, similar to like, oh, they just need a new trawl. You know, they didn't have a new trawl and let's get them a new trawl. Um, you know, or it could be as complicated as like digging in and, you know, I'm sure some folks listening have managed really large jobs and like really figuring out like just like going to the site, if you will, like literally sitting next to a salesperson and being like, okay, what what's their workflow each day? Oh, they do this. Oh, interesting. Like they're like bogged down by these meetings in the morning. Those are prime selling hours. Very similar to like, oh, we have our, you know, our trip to Home Depot or whatever. I'm again, making stuff up, like trying to connect here. But like I have a trip or Home Depot during like when they're awake and ready to go. Like, let's do that at the end of the day when they need a little bit of a break, you know, like just stuff like that, which might be a little bit more difficult to find essentially. Mm. Yeah. And, and and were there any like particular like big wins there that you could give an example of that it was like yeah, some, a big unlock? Yeah, I built this. Um, so, uh, as you can notice, I'm trying to connect it to uh, to trades folks, and I can kind of. No, it's much appreciated. If you could drop in the comments. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I'm trying. So don't make don't make me too don't make fun of me too much. But I, what I can tell you is, um, so the the big thing that I kind of built, and this was like a side project because they were like, "This is dumb," and then it turned out to make them a lot of money. Uh, was um, I? Uh, there's this thing called the traveling salesman problem. And the traveling salesman problem is basically like, imagine you have five, uh, you know, prospects or customers across a city, right? Well, I want to find the most efficient route to like go talk to them because I want to try to hit them all up in a day so I can hit up the next five tomorrow. Well, if you have a really inefficient route, you only could hit up three, right? So similar to some trades folks, like you might be like, well... Like I can I can only do these two jobs right now because that other job's across town, right? Well, if you can figure out a way to like split up your team and also like prioritize those jobs, maybe you can do the three jobs versus the two jobs. And so I built this like algorithm because part of this is not just figuring out like the most efficient route in like a physical sense, but it's also like who's most important. So the way that sales worked at Google is they would basically be like, here's your hundred accounts because there's a lot of people advertise on Google. Here's your hundred accounts, and you individually have to kind of figure out like I can't go after like if I go after all hundred of them across this quarter like I'm kind of nibbling I'm not going after the people who could spend a lot more and I'm wasting a bunch of time on the people that are just like not great right and so you would have to figure that out yourself well a lot of sales folks they're not as numbers orientated as I am I'm you know I, I have that background a lot of sales folks they're you know I don't know, I'm not going to characterize them, but they're, they're normally not as numbers, you know, orientated. And so I built this little algorithm to be like, look at my hundred accounts and it was more than a hundred, but that's fine. Um, and be like, okay, these 50 just do scalable stuff and ignore like react when they, cause they're not based on their numbers. They're not going to spend more money. So like, don't waste time on them. These, you know, 30, uh, or 40, uh, do like you know, kind of scalable things, but a little bit more higher touch. And then these 10 or 20, um, go all out on. And then those 10 or 20, I then built like actually a physical map because my thesis was, if I visit them in person, they'll spend more money and Google didn't do a lot of travel then. Well, when I went and visited them, all of a sudden they spent a lot more money. Right. And part of that was a self-serving bias because 
you know, those were the 10 counts that I identified as, you know, probably going to spend more money. So I don't know if the visit was actually necessary, but this is like basic prioritization, um, you know, unlocked a lot of money. And then all of a sudden my friends and different teams were like, oh, can I get that? Can I get that? And we started kind of, you know, almost like a, a gorilla style scaling it out. And yeah, I got an award and like a bonus of 5k and I, you know, I was happy with that. And the thing, you know, trades folks will appreciate this. I think I was like, it wasn't the reason I left was I, it wasn't because, you know, I, I didn't get as much money from making Google a ton of money. Cause you know, I work for, you know, work for Google and you know, they can get that work. Right. And I really enjoyed the project. Problem was at Google, you know, you make Google tens of millions, if not a hundred million dollars, it's not a big project to them. Like they're kind of like, okay, ver your project versus this other project like this project's going to make us a billion dollars. We're going to go focus there. So like I couldn't get any more resources and they were like, yeah, this is cute. You can keep doing this, but we're not going to like give you, you know, any more folks. And so I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to bust my butt, um, one, like I might as well do it for myself. And two, um, you know, that, that in ensures I get the upside, right. From busting my butt. Uh, and that's when I jumped into to kind of entrepreneurship and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, the, the traveling uh, salesman problem is, is, is fascinating because actually it's not, I mean, it's not a feature that, that we have yet. It's something that we, um, yeah. we, we do really want to build, but it's a common problem that we, excuse yeah. the ambulance going past right now. No, you're um, fine. It's, a, it's a common problem that our users have, um, which is, you know, I've got to plan all these jobs in a given day. And like when someone phones up and I need to plan this in, how do I optimize yeah. that job so that it fits in with all these other jobs that are, that are happening on that day? So No, exactly. Like field, the field management piece is, it's like, you know, the advantage we had is, you know, when you have those jobs, you have to go figure out how to do them. The advantage I had was like, there's like 50 of these people I technically don't have to talk about because Google just kind of cared about your number. So like, if you just get your number, um, you know, kind of go from there. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's that whenever you're dealing with like atoms, like physical, you know, atoms, uh, you know, there's always a little bit of a traveling salesman problem, no matter if it's, you know, for years, it's less sales and it's more of, uh, you know, job coverage basically. Yeah. Yeah. No, so that's fascinating. So that, so then you, you sort of, I think there might've been is there something in between, but or did, or did you go direct? Yeah, I jumped. Um, I, the, the best thing I did uh, and I didn't do this intentionally. I I ended up kind of getting involved in the Boston startup community, just like going to some events. And then um, like I started, I got on Twitter and I just started like following some folks in the Boston startup community and like replying and stuff. And what ended up happening is I, um, I didn't get recruited, but I was like, I, I was talking to a guy at Google who was about to leave and he had been there for a few years. And he told me something where he was like, at Google, if you look at the retention of people on our team, like a, it's a very large team, like 10, 10,000 people, um, people stay 18 months or they stay seven years. Like that's normally what happens because the people who stay there for seven years. Google pays you so much more money than you're worth because it, I mean, it makes sense because they have these really, really like smart people basically selling ads because they can afford it. Right. And so any job you go get, um, if you're not doing it for like some level of fulfillment, uh, what ends up happening is you, um, you, you, you get hooked on, you know, the cash. Right. And so the seven year folks, they get a mortgage, they might have a kid, they might do these types of things. And that was a very like, oh my gosh, like if I get caught up in that, I'm gonna, you know, not like it. I'm gonna like, you know, I'm gonna resent myself. Right. Cause I, again, this like the job part, you know, I was, I was the guy who like, 
they were telling like, Oh, don't you, don't you want to work a bit less? Like I was putting in 60 hours just cause I wanted to, cause I was like learning and doing a bunch of exciting stuff. And, um, and so I, I was in the Boston tech community a little bit. And then I was like, Oh, let me apply to some places. So I applied to some places, um, ended up having a couple of conversations with folks and then, um, you know, got offered a job at this, um, this startup that was, um, heavily venture backed, meaning they had raised a lot of money. And the reason that was such a good experience is I went from working with like my entire like core team of like 20 people, every single person was Ivy league, except for like three of us. Like they had all went to like really fancy colleges and stuff. So I went to that where like just the level of conversation, it's not to say like you're not smart if you're not, you know, an Ivy league, but I went to like from that environment to like an environment where it was, you know, not everyone was like the best, right? Like there was a lot of people who were like, you know, good, like they weren't bad, but there were some bad people. Don't get me wrong. But like, it's just a very different environment. Like, Oh, they have to struggle to recruit great people. Google doesn't have to struggle to recruit. So there was all these lessons. Oh, the culture like doesn't seem great. Why does it not seem great? Oh, like Google's culture is great because they throw money at it. You have gyms and perks and a lot of leave and all these other things. And they, like I had cancer when I was at Google and like, I didn't even, everything's fine now, just to be super clear, but like it it was, I didn't, not only did I not pay a dime, and this is a little different than the folks who are in Europe listening to this, not only did I not pay a dime, I didn't see a bill. Like I didn't have to deal with anything. It's just like the health insurance was so good, like everything was taken care of. And so to make a long story short, like I, that was a really good experience because I think if I had started a company before I went, or like before I had that experience, like right when I left Google, I think I would have failed because I didn't realize like... Like I thought marketing was just Google ads. I just thought that's what it was. Cause I didn't, I didn't know any better. I didn't have a background in business. I never wanted to get into business. I was going to go save the world or I was going to go be a lawyer or a doctor. My dad still wants to be a doctor. Like he still is like, Oh, you'd be a good doctor. I'm like, I'm in my thirties now. I don't think, I think that ship sailed, but, um, yeah. And so it was a good experience to kind of just see inside, you know, a, a, a business that would, you know, closer to that size to understand like, how complicated it can be. I mean, folks listening to this, even if you got five people, it's like, oh, I got to do payroll and then taxes and this and that. And it's like, you don't see that when you work at a big company because it's just all taken care of for you. Mm. Yeah. And then like, I do want to talk about um, the sort of recurring revenue and all of that stuff that you, you've managed at, at Profit World. But I know that yeah. you talk a lot and you're very passionate about team management and different approaches to that. Um, yeah. I, I know that our audience also, you know, a lot of them are running quite small businesses and it's a big challenge for them. So it'd be, it'd be good to delve a little bit yeah. deeper on like, is that something you developed when you started Profit Well and you learned while you were trying to build a company yourself or is it something you've always had an interest in? Um, I think, yeah, I think it was at building the company where I got I, everyone listening, like, there's probably an, an element of you who were like complained about your boss because everyone complains about their boss and stuff like that. And then you became a boss and you were like, Oh my God, this is so much hard. Like if you hadn't had the feeling, even if you weren't one of those people to go back to a boss and be like, Oh man, I'm sorry. I was not always the best team member or like putting that on your plate. Because I think when I started the company, um, I got a lot of advice that the team is everything. Culture is everything. These types of things. And I, I thought that was dumb advice. I thought it was like, no, like the thing that's going to hold us back is the product's not good. The marketing isn't good. The sales aren't good. These types of things. But at the end of the day, no matter your size, like it's the people that are doing the things, right? Like it's like the people at your company that ultimately are, are the success or failure. Now, if it's you and a couple other guys or gals, like 
you know, you're, you're a big part or big proportion of that team. But as you start to scale your team, even, even when we got to like 20 people, um, it's a lot of like, you know, it's a lot of folks, you know, to kind of, you know, manage and, you know, John over there, if, if John sucks, then, you know, Lucy's relying on John and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, she wants to leave because John isn't great, but she won't tell you that because she feels like she doesn't want to rip on John. Like there's just all these literal interesting dynamics that make things really complicated. And so I kind of developed like, um, appreciation of team. And then the other thing was, um, I had a good co-founder who just like, you know, kicked me in the face every day. Um, you know, for, that's just kind of how he was, he was wired. He's a, he's a product engineering person. So he's very like, you know, doesn't pull any punches and doesn't like, you know, doesn't put any gloves on those punches, you know, to, to, to kind of get the point across. And so that was good because we, we kind of like sanded each other down for lack of better phrase in terms of like the roughness that we had. And, you know, we really kind of, you know, it, it became less about, and I think this is a big misconception with team stuff. It's not about accommodating your team. Like that's a big difference. It's not like you're not going to figure out your team's happiness. This is a big misconception. Like people choose their own happiness and they choose like when they're going to be down. It's about creating an environment where they can be fulfilled and creating an environment that gets the team you want. Some teams, they're very familial. Like it's very like family. It's like, yeah, you know, John, you know, John's hungover. We're going to, you know, we're okay with that. Other teams, very performance. But it's about setting that expectation and then reinforcing whatever that expectation is that's most important. Um, I think the biggest mistake I made in the early days was like, I was so scared all the time that this person was going to leave, this person was going to leave, and all of a sudden it was going to like ruin everything. And that created this environment where like, there's a bunch of stuff where we should have just been like, hey, John, this is not how this is not how we act. Like, Hey John, like I understand X, Y, Z and everything. It's rarely black and white. Right. Um, but I think that was, that was the big thing of being like, no, here's who we are. Here's like, here's the things we value. And this is how we judge if we're doing a good job or not and who should be on this team and who shouldn't. Um, and when we finally did that, um, the team really appreciated it. Even the people who didn't fit because the people who didn't fit, it was easy for them to be like, oh, cool. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be on this team anymore. Let me find a new job, which is a little bit different in the software space versus in the, uh, you know, trade space. But I would kind of liken it to like, in the early days, your culture is like you and maybe your partner or whoever it is, or your first kind of team member, like it's just the people. So if you don't like the culture, you, you don't like going to work, probably need different people um, because the people aren't great. And that could be on any axis. Like the people you're working with aren't working as hard as you want them to. All right, find different people, you know, but you know, it's also struggling with maybe you're wrong. Like maybe they are and you just don't know it. And that's, that to me is like leadership is picking a direction, going after it and constantly in the back of your mind being like, ah, I might be wrong. Let me like take in information. And as I take in information, I start to go, okay. Um, I still think, I still think this is the right direction and being like, this is still the right direction and kind of going from there. And is that in terms of like creating that, that's you and your co-founder saying, this is the direction we believe is right. And then communicating that and then adapting from there. Or is there any kind of you let anything happen organically or it's very much you would recommend starting something going right thus i think it, it depends on what type of business you want right so like in the software space it's all growth right like it's not like we're just trying to you know <clears throat> get five percent more jobs than we did last year and get five percent more profit than we did last year it's like no you're trying to double or triple right so it's a little bit of an extreme that i think folks in like 
you know, who don't necessarily have that like vision to like learn from, because I think what, what it ends up being is like in your early days, let's say sub 20 employees or team members, like just to make it, you know, a little more concrete, like in those early days, it's, it's the people like your culture is who you accept on your team or not. And too many of us like accept the guy that you're probably paying too much for what they're doing and they're just not that great, but you didn't want to spend the time to find the great person and you don't realize that person is affecting everyone else around them, like in, in the trades, quite literally, like because someone's got to wait for him or her to like do this thing or someone's got to deal with them and they're always got like, you know, crappy personality and all this other stuff. And so you accept the team you have, you accept the culture you have. And then as you start scaling, it becomes about like being very deliberate. And I think it doesn't have to be complicated. It's just like going and looking at, typically it's the core team, the folks who are like, these are the teams that, that I want to work with for a decade, the rest of my life, whatever it is. What are the characteristics we have? What are the values we have? And then, you know, scrutinizing those, like, are these the things that get us to our goal? Whether it's, you know, I want to get to a point where I can work four days a week, or I can get to a point where I'm, you know, doubling or whatever it is. And then if the answer is yes, then like, yeah, communicating those like, Hey, this is, this is how we think. And I, I think a lot of smaller businesses, they don't do this, this process because they like, they just don't think about it because they're not trying to grow really big. And this is really important if you're trying to grow big, but I still think there's a ton of value in it because I like one, you just look like you're a boss. Like you just look like you're like, Hey, this is what's going on. And people really like find comfort in that. Um, they're like, all right, I don't always agree with Patrick, but it seems like he's got his crap together. Therefore, like, you know, I'll, I'll kind of trust it. I think the other thing is like, you just, a lot of people, they just want to know what's good and what's bad. And when you're like, this is good, this is bad. They're like, cool. I understand this is good and this is bad. And I can like act within that. Um, I mean, if you got a lot of short-term labor, I don't know how important it is, but I do think it like helps. Um, Hey, we care about this, this, and this, um, or here's the the order. Cause normally it's like, yeah, we care about everything. We care about hard work. We care about, you know, efficiency. We also care about doing the, doing the right thing, but like, what's the order, right? Cause they're, that's when values are used and that's how people, you know, they shouldn't have to ask like, how should I act here? They should use that judgment, but you have to kind of give them the inputs into that judgment. Um, you know, which is really, really important. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And there's, there's tons of resources out there, books and videos and things. Is there anything in particular that you take inspiration on that you would recommend others go off and read or watch on, on this topic? Yeah. The one book, and I think it actually is really helpful for folks in the trades or running trades businesses is, um, high output management. Now I know it's got, I know it's got the word management in it, but everyone's managing. If you got a team, you're managing whatever it is. The reason I like that book so much is the first, I think it's technically the second chapter. The second chapter is annoyingly precise. I'll, I'll say that. So it's going to be a little brutal. It, it talks through like running a restaurant and what he does is he goes through like, yep, a restaurant is prepare the food, like take the order, prepare the food, deliver the order, right? Clean up, right? Those are the four steps, but those steps, there's so many different things. And if you're trying to, it's almost like he almost talks through like an assembly line of like how to create, um, you know, how to like put things together and that precision gives you a good kind of filter as someone to be like, all right, let me try to see the bigger picture of what we're trying to do. Because I think in those early days or those SMB days, those small business days, um, you know, whether that's what you always want to do, you're always reacting 
and that's a good book that kind of gives you not only some really good, you know, advice and feedback, some of which won't be applicable, but it'll give you a good way to think about like, how should I be looking at my team? How should I be looking at my business um, from kind of like a people or management perspective? And it's not fluffy, which I think is great Um, because a lot of this stuff gets fluffy and I tried to avoid being fluffy, but like a lot of it's like, oh, feelings. It's like, no, no, no. It's not about feelings. It's about performance. Like what type of performance do you want? What type of performance is acceptable? Awesome. Yeah, very much. Encourage people to read that then. Um, Yeah. So moving on then, um, an area that I'd like to sort of delve a bit deeper into is we've been talking to a lot of businesses um, over the past few months about how they develop service plans um, for the trades businesses. So whether that's, um, you know, a a heating company, then I'm going to go and service your like heating installation every year or electrical company or like a pool company that do heaters and then go and like there are countless examples of what you could do in a, a trade business to get recurring revenue but in reality the majority are not doing this so it's a it's a massive opportunity to not only create more revenue but actually create more value in your business obviously a, a, a profit well is a big part of that is helping other businesses in the tech space um, manage their recurring revenue but i guess just just kicking us off is like can you give us an overview of like why recurring revenue is important, perhaps like how you believe it could be valuable for a, a trade business? Yeah. So the, the first step is realizing um, it's asking why, like why there's, there's money aspects, which I think people have definitely talked about, but I think that stems from something around like why a recurring revenue or why like a subscription or why a maintenance plan, however you want to kind of define it. And the thing to realize, like, so at Paddle, you know, we have all of these different, um, and that's, you know, trying to use the new name more yeah, sorry, and more. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, so yeah you're fine. No, well. everyone yeah. knows this as ProfitWell. Yeah. And like, yeah. I, you know, they're like, oh, I mentioned, mentioned Paddle. I get feedback on that. And I'm like, hey, yeah, 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 I get it. So normally I don't say, oh, at Paddle, blah, blah, blah. Normally people are like, oh, at ProfitWell, like you did. So anyways, but, you know, we, we deal, that's all we deal with, subscription businesses of all kinds. And when you think about why a subscription, the beauty of the subscription model is you bake the relationship with the customer into how you're making money. And if you have a relationship with your customer tied to how you make money, it is both infinitely easier to make more money and it is infinitely easier to give more value to your actual customer. So a way I like to think about this for folks who aren't in like the SaaS or subscription space specifically is imagine you have your local grocery store That local grocery store has to give you coupons or has to kind of convince you every week to come and not go to the grocery store on the other side of town because they don't have a relationship with you, right? They have to like have you come in when that milk is out or have you come in. Now, they've built a relationship with you because you always go to that one because you like the deals and stuff like that, but it's really easy to like switch to that other grocery store, right? If you're my electrician or you're my, um, you know, my tinner or my sheet metal worker or whatever it is, like, am I going to call you back next time? Am I not going to call you back next time? Am I going to get a referral, right? Well, yeah, some will. But if I had a relationship with you, I had the maintenance plan or subscription plan or services plan, I think of you as my sheet metal guy, my electrician right? Not just opening up the, you know, it's not the yellow book anymore, but going to Google and finding someone else or going to, you know, all those aggregators. So that's the why, right? Now, 
it's not for everything. Like there are some things like you shouldn't put everything on a subscription because it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right. But what you should be thinking about is like, how do I like deepen that relationship? Um, and so that's, that's the why now the other why is, uh, you, you just have better margin, right? Like there's this whole concept of churn and I don't know how much people know. It's just basically like how often people cancel their subscriptions. Um, and essentially if I keep having users, you know, pay me over time, monthly, annually, whatever the subscription is, um, all of a sudden that allows, you know, for expansion revenue opportunities. Because if I have your credit card already on file and it's like, oh yeah, I you know pay twice a year to come, you know, flush the system or look at things um, or come in reactively. But when you come in reactively or to do that flush, oh, by the way, uh, Lucy, we have this new uh, thing that we can do for you. If you want me to take a look at your gutters, I'm happy to like do a quick rust check on it and replace anything. It's just an extra 10 bucks. Is that, is that good? Yeah, yeah, sounds great. And all of a sudden you just like charge the credit card. It's not like a separate invoice for those types of things. And so it's a little philosophical, but that's, that's why you're doing it is to have that relationship and your part of that relationship is money. Their part of the relationship is getting ongoing value, um, which is ultimately better for them as well. Mm. And, and when people like start to think about this, so I'm creating this for my business, like how, like what kind of process should I go through to design what should be part of that plan? Is yeah. that something that you can? I think that for a lot of these businesses, um, and I've talked to like property managers have like a similar problem because, you know, property management, normally it is a subscription, you know, it's a monthly fee. Um, but I think that, you got to kind of start with, and this sounds fluffy again, but I'll try to make it concrete. Like what is your core value, right? So for an electrician, like their core value right now is like either if they're building something out, building it out, but on an ongoing basis, it's probably like reacting to problems, right? Well, can we make that more proactive? Because the customer, I assure you, would rather be proactive as well, right? Because, you know, they don't want to like, because it's always the like, it's the you know, mechanic problem, you know more about electrician work than, than they do. And when something goes bad because it wasn't monitored, it always costs more or it's just extremely inconvenient, right? So one place to start is just, you know, these maintenance contracts or services contracts that a lot of people are doing, which is just like, hey, I'll be your guy on call. Here's what it costs and here's what it includes. And those types of things that it can include are, you know, obviously like doing you know, proactive check twice a year, once a quarter, every three months. But maybe it's, hey, you're prioritized on call. You're probably going to come on call anyways if they call you. But now that the agreement is within you, they're actually paying you for it. And that means maybe you're not able to charge the extra, you know, emergency fee. But it also means like you have more recurring revenue theoretically. And I'll take the recurring revenue because I can plan more. Um, especially if you can find the sweet spot of, I'm not like giving away everything for a lower price. I'm giving away a lot of like the same things I probably would already provide. I'm just doing it in a different way. And that sets different expectations between me and the customer. And then obviously for like work done, they still have to pay for that work done or the materials or those types of things. So the, th the thing is, is to start with that core value and probably what you're already kind of doing and just packaging it differently into this subscription. And there's some trade-offs, right? Again, probably not going to be able to charge those emergency fees, but 
a lot of times, like depending on where you are, like the past couple of years for the trades have been crazy and just given, you know, need and stuff like that. But it, it wasn't always like that. Like I remember, you know, we were on strike a lot, you know, and all, or the jobs ran out and, you know, my dad would have to travel, you know, cause the union would always, you know, guarantee you a job. But you know, those, 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 those times will come back in everyone's business uh, here and there. And hopefully not everyone at all at once, but I think it's like that recurring revenue, like, guarantees a little bit more and also the work's a lot easier like it's so much easier to make money by like oh i have to come in and just check the panel and do like a spot check like every three months versus like oh man i gotta like in order to make my revenue i gotta like do build outs and sell and do all this other stuff um you know there's a different vibe there hvac is the easiest one um i would say like just by studying this a little bit i think electricians it's a little bit harder to probably sell a maintenance plan um but you know, you can sell it on the back end of a job. Like, Hey, we'll, you know, prioritize you. There's so many people who are just like, yeah, I don't want to have to deal with this. Like when it comes up, like, and I'm, I don't have an ego about it. I just want someone to solve it. And, um, I can tell you where, where I live, I live in Puerto Rico now, like finding a good contractor for like anything. Mind the language barrier is like, you know, it's hard. You know, there's only so many contractors. A lot of people want to do stuff. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, no, for, for sure. I think what's interesting about what you said there is, is, is how the customer sees it because you I think a lot of people are apprehensive about it because they're like oh now I've just got to think about something else I want to sell does the customer really want this I'm pushing something on them but it's like I actually think about it, like the customer wants that they they want to know this is my person that I go to if I have a problem with that thing like you say they're not okay they're like you do have to come if they if they're cool but like depending on how you structure your plan you've got complete control over that um, but the customer wants that confidence they want that person and they're happy to pay for it honestly and this is something i should have said already it's getting your getting your mindset out of an hourly rate like my like it's just getting getting out of this hourly rate mindset right and i i understand the appeal and this is how a lot of things have always been done but this is the same problem like uh, web designers have and like other contractors in like the, the, the SAS or the, the, the online space, like this hourly rate concept. Well, honestly, like it's a value question and I value the thing being done or I value the security of if something happens, I have one phone number I can call and they're going to come fix it within some sort of SLA, 48 hours, 24 hours, the same day, whatever it is, same day if it's, you know, before 1 p.m. Eastern or something like that. That's the value. You're not selling your time. You're selling the value of what they're getting from it. And I think that helps break up the mindset of, and it's also like, yeah, you have to sell something. Not everyone's going to want it. That's okay. That's totally fine. There's going to be a bunch of people who are like, nah, I'm okay. Okay, great. It didn't cost you anything, but like the 20 minutes after the job's complete and you do the walkthrough to like, hey, we also have this. It's really, really powerful. And like, yeah, you got to get good at that conversation and stuff like that. But, you know, 20% of people take you up on it. It costs a thousand bucks a year. That's an extra $20,000, you know, like all of a sudden a year for doing basically the exact same thing you were already doing but then just prioritizing those 20 customers over other people, which again is not hard depending on the size of your team. Um, so yeah, that's just the the thing that I would, I would think about. And then that leads on to like, how should people think about pricing? Like where do they start? That's something that I think people get a bit stuck on. It's like, okay, price, yeah. so I'll create this plan. How do I price it? Yeah, that's hard. Um, so 
very similar to what I just said. Don't just do it on like hourly times 10 or whatever, right? Because you're going to probably have some people who never use it. And you're going to go, well, are they getting the value from it? Again, you're not selling your time. You're selling the peace of mind, right? So if you're selling the peace, and again, there's a lot of places depending on your trade where you can take this, right? Like maybe it's you test the water if you're a plumber every, you know, quarter or something like that to make sure, you know, you just do a water test. You do stuff like this. Like it doesn't have to be just like being on call. Um, the way I think about figuring out what your packaging could be is just brainstorm, like get a piece of paper out and just write, here are all the things that we did for the last six months that weren't like, or no, don't even, don't even think of a qualifier. It's just, these are all the things we did. Oh, we had that call because this thing happened, this thing happened. And then like, what are the things that we could offer on a continual basis? Maybe no one cares about it, but what, what, what do we think is a cool possibility based on those like last six months? Oh, we could offer, you know, the priority plan. We could offer the, you know, flushing the pipes. We could offer this. We could offer that. That's how you start figuring out the packaging. Now, the actual price point, the thing to keep in mind is um, value is very much in the eyes of the customer, you know, like how they think about the value, right? So there are some things that when you come up with that list, you might go, well, I can't offer this for less than a thousand bucks a year. And your customer only thinks it's worth a hundred bucks a year. Well, that's not a problem with like, that's a problem with one of three areas. One, is there a different customer you can sell to? Two, if you can only sell to that customer, is there something else on that list that they actually do value? And three, maybe, you know, you're just like not as efficient as you should be in terms of those costs, right? And so when you realize it's about the customer, you just talk to your customers about it or your prospective customers. Like when you finish the next couple of jobs, like, hey, you know, hey, we've been working together for the past couple of years on this. Like, um, there's something I'm thinking about. Like I'm thinking about adding this in. We get calls in and you can kind of like half pitch it. Like, you know, we get calls in all the time. I got to charge you emergency fees. John, you never like the fees. I know you don't like it, but I kind of have to. But we're kind of thinking like, maybe we could do this, this, and this. Like, what do you think of that? Like, don't lead them too much, but like, what do you think of that? And then just shut up. Like, don't say anything. Don't lead them. Just like, let them respond. And then you'll ask some follow-up questions. And then when you're actually getting to the price point, it's like my favorite thing, because they're going to ask the price. Like, don't tell them the price, but just be like, hey, we're thinking of this like annual service commitment or quarterly service commitment or monthly maintenance plan, however you want to position it, depending on what you've come up with. And they're like, oh, how much does it cost? Well, John, that's actually a really interesting question because um, we're, we're testing this out. Like, I'll give you my thoughts in a second, but if you don't mind, like, let me, let me, let me like ask you some questions to kind of see how you think about it. Cool. Okay, cool. Um, at what annual price, monthly price, quarterly price, however long you want to do it, at what quarterly price would this be like way too expensive? Like you, you wouldn't return my call when I ask if you wanted this and then let John kind of struggle and John will eventually give you an answer. Um, and then, okay. And at what price annually, quarterly, whatever it would, would it be, um, such a good deal that like I could charge you today? Like I literally just go to the invoice and like put it down or charge your credit card if it's that type of relationship. And if I do that across like even five to 10 people, I start to figure out like kind of like a range, like, oh, they're all kind of like this one guy said $10,000. I don't know if I trust that. This other guy said, you know, $1,000. And then these like six or seven people kind of like said $700 to $800. All right. So I think like, unless I'm going to find a lot of $10,000 folks, and maybe I should just use that as a one-off, like I'll go do, do that for 10 grand. And then, you know, the rest of the folks, I'll kind of price it at 750 bucks. Like 
that's how you do it. It's not rocket science. It's literally just doing a little bit of it's called market research or customer development. That's what we call it in our world. Um, you know, and sometimes they're like, you know, they, they struggle to give you answers, but this is why you don't ask just one person. Um, but you have those conversations and you'll learn so much from those conversations that have nothing to do with your price. You'll just learn so many things. And then it's ultimately on you to figure out like, do you want to like move forward with that or not? And how much should you ever be influenced by your competitors? Because you might look at a competitor down the road and think, oh, they've got service plan, they're charging this. Are you anchored to that? Like, should you worry? Owners overestimate how competitive their markets are. I've I've done the pricing in so many markets. I've done the markets for um, a lot of building and trade software. So like I I understand you know these types of buyers. I've done you know consumer markets. I've done I've done a lot. Um, and I can tell you, this number is, is made up, but it's proportional. Like ninety five percent of the time, your competitors are kind of an input, but they should not matter much if at all. And the reason for that is you think about your competitor a lot, right? And you think like, oh man, like I see their trucks, you know, around town all the time. Like, ah, oh, they're next door and they're, someone chose them over me. Like, ah, oh, I look on the, if I'm running ads, I, I see their ad above mine all the time. Like that type of stuff. You're thinking about it so much more. Most of the time, unless there's, and, and this is, this is the, the test. If in conversations, the competitor comes up half or more of the time, I might not like go with where my competitor is, but I might think, okay, I need to kind of weight the data of what they're charging a little bit more than I am because your customer then is thinking like if I'm talking to so many prospects or customers and they keep talking about, cause they might be advertising a lot in the area or they might be doing something. Oh, I'm hearing about them a lot. Then I need to kind of consider this. But the thing to think about is when you do competitive-based pricing or really competitor-based anything, you are assuming that your competitor has done their homework. You're assuming that they've talked to customers to figure out what the value is. They've gone to the customer to figure out what they care about. I guarantee you, and I, I got data on this, like only two out of 10 companies typically do any of their actual customer research, any of their actual pricing research. And that means you're copying off the dumb kid in class. Like you think... Lucy's got the answers and she doesn't like she doesn't she didn't do her homework either and you're basically like oh I'm just going to copy off them and so the way we think about it is talk to your customers figure out kind of what you think you should do then go to you know look at some of the competitor data look at your cost data and see like if I did what the customer like and again it's not it's not doing what your customer says you're still going to have to make judgment calls because you might have like this is a more uh, interesting example couple of customers willing to pay $10,000 a year and then a bunch of customers willing to pay $1,000 a year. That's a judgment call. That's not a, hey, let's make the price $5,000 because then you're too cheap for the $10,000 people and you're way too expensive for the $1,000 people. That's a, I need to make a decision of what type of company I am. Am I going to go try to find more of the 10,000 and sell to those guys and gals or am I going to go for volume and go after the folks who are cheaper? But like once you make that decision, then I'm going to look at competitors and most of the time you're like, oh, they're not even competing at this level. They compete down there and we chose to go up here or like our competitors don't even know they exist. So I'm not going to really like take that into account. Um, but that's kind of the order that I would do it. And 
it doesn't take that much data. This is all qualitative, but it does mean choosing who you're targeting. And that's something I probably should have harped on more is like, not all customers are equal. You have customers you're working on, if you're listening to this, that are terrible, but you're like, ah, I'll just do it. I'll get the cash flow. But then when you look at the actual job, your margin was terrible. Like you actually paid them technically to be there because, you know, they were, they, you know, you didn't stand your ground with what you should have charged them. You, um, you know, like a bunch of things. Right. And so it's like, you're running your business. You can choose the customers you're going after. Um, and if you're in the trades a lot, you, you, know, you can be a lot more choosy than, than you once were um, about those customers. Yeah. Awesome. So I've, I've, I've created a plan. I've decided what's gone into it. I've priced it. I put it out there. What's really important now is actually retaining those customers. What kind of thing should I be thinking about there? Um, so I think the first thing is you're going to have customers who cancel. That's just a fact of life, right? Um, you know, death taxes and cancellations, right? You know, there's a lot of those things. Um, and that's okay, right? Because what we found, and this is very broad data, so, you know, your results are probably going to vary, but maybe not that dramatically. Um, you know, we found that 40% of the reasons why people cancel products have nothing to do with you. Uh, for some products, it's like they're going on vacation. They're, you know going, they, they live, you know, in a different place for time, part of the year. They don't need your maintenance plan for that part. They probably should, but you know what I mean? Like they're, they're down on their luck. Like their, their personal budget has gone really low. Um, their kid became an electrician. They're just going to use their kid. They're not going to use you anymore. Right. There's a bunch of different reasons. Um, and a lot of business owners, you take everyone who cancels personally because you're like, I want to do a good job. And, you know, I thought I did a good job and then they left. And so you take it personally, you treat them like a jilted lover and you're like, oh, they're never going to come back. In reality, um, a lot of those customers who cancel do come back. So there, there's a couple of things. So first let's, let's maybe go in order. So the first thing is when someone tries to cancel, you should not hijack them and make them send you a certified letter or anything like that or call you maybe if you have an interface. A lot of you might not have an interface. You also shouldn't like, as soon as they cancel, just like let them leave instantly. What you should do is you should say, hey, um, super curious, like, you know, totally understand, uh, but I'd like to just understand more. Like, why are you leaving? That's really important data because maybe it has nothing to do with you. Maybe it has something to do with you that you can solve, or maybe it has something to do with you, but you're just not going to solve it. Like you just weren't a good fit, right? And they'll give you a bunch of information. And then the next question, this is a really crucial question. We studied like 2 million cancellation flows, mostly like online stuff, but I think it really applies anywhere because it's humans, not, not anything different. What did you like about the service? What did you get out of it? And then they'll give you information. And those two pieces of information are not only really important for like, making the product better, helping your team get better. Like, Hey, they really don't like when we curse so much, you know, like they don't like when we curse so much or something like that. Like, let's try to like tone that down when we're with the customers. Great. We just hopefully reduce some churn or some cancellations down the road with that. Cause we heard it five times and why people were canceling. Right. Or, Hey, they really liked when we left them a handwritten note because they couldn't, um, you know, when we were leaving and they weren't there. Let's just start incorporating that. So like if we're leaving and they're not there, we'll leave the handwritten note. And then if, if we leave and they're there, let's send them a handwritten note or like drop it in their mailbox so they see it. And it's, you know, hey, thanks for letting me work on your house or whatever it is. It helps with that. The other reason it helps is because you can try to save some of these customers. And this is why you don't want to treat them as like a jilted lover. You want to say like, okay, so you mentioned like 
we, we didn't respond in time, but that you also really, really like this thing. How about I do this? How about I give you the next quarter at 25% off because we were late on that job? I, I, I understand. You're right. Um, let me give you the next quarter at 25% off. And then we'll, I want to re-earn your business here. Most of the time people are like, yeah, okay. Like if it's that actual reason, and sometimes people, they lie or they they don't really know, but that's called a, 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 um, salvage offer. Like I'm trying to save them or maybe it's just, Hey, it's just way too, ex- a lot of people will say it's too expensive. Like, and that's not really the reason. So you kind of have to dig a little bit, but if it's like, okay, well, you really like what we do, but it's too expensive. All right. Well, why don't I give you the next, you know, the next quarter at, you know, 50% off so that you can actually see like how great we are. Or why don't I bump you down? And this is something why you should have multiple plans. I'll bump you down to the, this lower plan. You don't get this, this, and this, but you get the thing that you really liked, right? And you can kind of do this on the fly because a lot of the things you're offering are a little up in the air. And that's like the first year of any service. You're going to kind of be all over the place with what you're offering. So you can have all these custom plans basically for each customer, but you want to try to save them. And then the next step is one, a lot of those people are canceling because of something that has nothing to do with you. So I want to try to reactivate them. I don't want to treat them as a jilted lover. I want to basically be like, okay, like, you know, I tried to keep you, but you know, you still want to leave. You don't tell them this, but like, um, but I'll just like, you know, if it's okay, I'll like keep reaching out to you just with like different stuff that we come up with. And this is why a lot of trades businesses have started doing content marketing, right? Because content marketing allows you to be like, oh, I should, I should clean my gutters three times a year. I didn't even know that, right? Like it gives stuff to like, you know, us, us normies who aren't, aren't in the trades to understand. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, start sending me emails once a quarter. Like, Hey John, you know, we just like, we're doing this to the maintenance plan now. Like if you want the maintenance plans, just let me know. Oh, not for me. But then the quarter after that, they're like, Oh yeah, you guys added the the gutter cleaning. Yeah, I'll totally do that. Like, um, how do I sign up? Right. So you want to reactivate some of those customers. And then the third kind of tactic is, um, what I really like to do is, you know, and this works for any type of subscription is let's say it's like a maintenance plan. It's monthly or quarterly. Well, especially a business customer, Businesses at the end of the year, especially very similar to your business, if you're listening, there's a little bit, especially in the States of this dump your budget season, which is like, well, if I don't prepay for some stuff, you got to be careful depending on your accounting. And this is not accounting advice, but for the most part, like if I don't pay for something, that's going to be looked at as profit. Now I'm a small business. I don't see it as profit because I'm not going to put it in my, my pocket. It's going to stay in the business, but like Uncle Sam is going to tax that at a rate of, you know, 30, 40, depends on the size of your business. And so a lot of times they like, they're, they're okay prepaying for things at the end of the year. So offering at the end of the year or even different times of the year, Hey, we'll give you one month free or, you know, $10 off or a hundred dollars off if you prepay for a year. And a lot of people will take you up on it. Not everyone, like 20% of people, you know, in most businesses will take you up on this and you're giving up a little bit but you're gaining cash flow and you're locking that person in for a longer time. So they're not going to churn out or cancel one quarter and two quarters in or three months in because they're locked in for that year. And you have that year to basically make sure that they want to go for the next year. Right. And you get that cash to basically invest and, you know, build your business or, you know, just lock that customer in. Mm. What, what, what do you think about discounting? Should I, should I offer discounts on my plans or? Yeah, I think um, discounts are a scalpel. They're not a sledgehammer. That's the thing you got to keep in mind. I think when you're new to, I would just say sales in general. And I would also argue when you're new to like 
like subscriptions or a new product, you want it to go well. So you're like, well, it must be, it must be the price. Like I have to discount it. Right. Um, and most of the time it's because you don't, you didn't do any research. You didn't talk to anybody. So you don't really have confidence in the number. Right. And so I think the thing to kind of think about with discounts is like, it has to be a gives and gets. So in the gives and gets of the cancellation flow that I just talked about, that person's sticking around for another month. So I'm willing to give them a bit of a discount for that trade. But notice it wasn't a lifetime discount. They don't get that discount forever. It's just for that next month. And also like it's, they're, they're going to be gone anyway. So I'm willing to, like, I have this signal that like they're trying to cancel and some people will try to like most, most of this will probably be in sales for the folks listening, but online people try to game it sometimes. So you got to make sure you don't give them that discount if they try to cancel every time. But like if they try to cancel, all of a sudden it's like, okay, I can give you this this particular discount um, you know, to stick around. And then the hope is, because remember that relationship aspect of subscriptions, the hope is that they all of a sudden will stick around and they'll see the value that month or that quarter, and then they'll stick around longer term, right? That's all you're trying to do. They, they didn't see quite the value yet. So you're giving them some time at a discounted rate in order to you know, see the value longer term. And so I think that's a great time to discount. I think you got someone who fits the customer that you've chosen to go after. Um, they seem like a really good fit. They're on the border. They kind of are like, you know, whinging uh, to use, use a British term. They're kind of like, I don't okay. know. They're like nice. waffling. Um, I don't think I used it even properly there though. That's the funny part, but they're, they're kind of waffling and you'd be like, Hey, listen, you're a great, I can tell you're going to be a great partner. We don't want to work with crappy customers. You're right in our sweet spot of who we should work with. I understand it's hard to sometimes make a decision on this. What if I gave you the first quarter or the first month? I'll give you the first month at, you know, hundred bucks off, half off, whatever it is. And then we can go from there. Like just to get them over the line, I think that's a good discount. Now you got to be careful with the size of the discount because if the only reason they're signing up is the discount, it's not a good customer. They're just going to cancel. And what the thing with the maintenance plan is, is like, you're going to plan based on how many people are on this subscription, right? Well, if you're signing up a bunch of bad customers who end up leaving within a quarter or a couple months, you can't do that planning. And then you just spent money. Maybe it's just your time selling to them. So you, you wasted your time because they're not a great customer and you spent some time trying to save them. And maybe you spent some time in the middle, you know, trying to, trying to help them. Um, but this is one of those things where you, you, you should be careful with it. Someone shouldn't be signing up just for the discount. Now, if they're great customers and it's an end of year sale and you want to kind of send this out, great. But make the discount discreet, meaning don't just put it on your homepage. Everything must go, et cetera. You don't want to be a discount brand because, you know, you're dealing with skilled trades. Like I don't want the, the, I don't want to choose an electrician just because they're the cheapest. I want to pick someone who's good, right? So you want to be discreet. Um, unless you're a discount brand, like, um, you know, Harbor Freight is a discount brand in the US. Like in terms of tools, you know what you're getting. You're getting stuff that's probably going to break in a year or two, but it's cheap as hell, right? Um, and some of it's actually really good, right? So like finding those deals that are really cheap and will stick around um, are, are really fun, right? Um, so discreet, you want it to be time-based. Hey, it's not forever. It's just that first month, that first quarter, that first year, depending on what you're selling. Um, and ultimately, you want to make it so that it's it's just enough to get them over the line. It's not something that like they're buying because of the size of the discount. And that's going to depend on you know your price point, your customer, what that number actually is. Yeah, cool. That's great. And then like the final, I just had a, a thought on this because I know you talk a lot, particularly for software businesses, about 
value of having a, like a free tier um, and using that as more of an acquisition method because at the, when the customer decides the timing is right, then you've got a relationship with them. Yeah. Do you think there's any way that that translates to like a, a, a maintenance or service contract? For I mean, I've not, I've not really thought this through, but like, is there an opportunity there? Um, so whenever you're dealing with atoms, free gets hard, right? So I think that what I have seen work really well in more services-based businesses, both actually trades and also non-trades businesses, is assessments, audits, like proposals, those types of things um, tend to work on a free basis. I think there's a world where you could offer some sort of free plan but you'd have to really figure so, so to back up a second the reason you offer something for free is it is a way to start nurturing a relationship and it's it's in order to get someone over the hump without like devaluing what you're actually offering so that's like the thesis behind it so the way if 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 you've researched like content marketing or you know blogging and stuff like that the way to look at this is a free plan is kind of like an ebook so you have them download an ebook on like how to clean their gutters that type of a business um you know that's a good lead because they showed interest in wanting to understand, you know, how to clean their gutters. And then you can reach out to them and say, Hey, like, you know, if you want more information, let us know. Also, we offer this service to help you clean your gutters, you know, X, Y, and Z. Right. So a free plan is kind of like that ebook, but typically the way it works best is if it's like a recurring thing, right? Because that particular customer, maybe they don't convert month one, month two, month three, quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, but all of a sudden after nine months of nurturing, they convert. And instead of having to resell them, they already had familiarity with you. They already like understood who you are. And when they thought of, oh, we should finally get someone to clean our gutters or, you know, blow out our HVAC system or whatever it is, like, oh, let's let's go to those guys. Like we we were using that free product or we were, you know, doing XYZ with them. So in the services and trades world, honestly, content is probably the best thing for you to do. Um, there's a pool cleaning business out of, um, Ohio. The guy got so good at it. He no longer does pool cleaning. I think he still has the business. Actually, he doesn't, he has a marketing agency now for service-based businesses. And what he would do is he would go and it was just him. He would go clean pools all day. And then at night he always made sure he wrote a blog post and the blog post was like, how to deal with this algae, right? Just stuff that, you know, people would search for like, oh, I have this, like how to deal with this. And a lot of times it's the same concepts, just writing them over and over again. Or um, you see folks on YouTube are like, you know, there's a lot of like creators in the services businesses space now who are like, oh, I'm going to clean out this, you know, this um, washer dryer. Oh, look at all the, you know, this, or look at the mold, you know, that type of thing. That type of stuff is probably the best thing is to gain that audience. And you can do that on a city by city basis as well. Um, I've seen some folks do like, you know, the Salt Lake guide, you know, and it's just like a service, like they're out on a job. Hey, this is the Salt Lake thing. This is what I like about Salt Lake. Oh, here's a problem with Salt Lake, you know, houses because of this, you know, thing. Like just that type of content is probably the best freemium plan. I think you could experiment with like a freemium plan. Um, it's hard because there's labor involved. So, you're going to have to do it, but your time is valuable. So technically you're just giving away your time or you have to kind of figure out how it can work in the context. Like, I don't know, like just to think some crazy ideas, right? Um, there's probably something central you can do 
I don't know, like they give you, cause every, there's a lot of stuff that's online now. They give you, you're an electrician and they give you access to, um, you know, their, their account somehow with the electrical company. So you can see their usage and each quarter you send them a usage report and you just kind of build it out in Excel so that you can just kind of copy and paste or you can like automate that pretty easily. Um, you might have to build a little technical know-how, but some of that stuff is pretty simple or you can pay a kid to do it and just copy and paste stuff. And then they just get their report every single quarter. There's real work there. There's some value there, but even then you can make it a dollar a month. Right. And it's, it, you know, you're, you're losing quote unquote money over it, but those are those customers that convert and you can kind of try to experiment with it for, couple quarters and just see, cause that gives you the opportunity to have a conversation when you're sending that report each month, you can be like, Hey, your usage is up. I, I wonder if you have this thing. I'm happy to come look at it. Um, it's part of our maintenance plan. You know, this is the type of stuff we do. It includes priority support and all this other stuff. Um, just let me know. Oh yeah, that sounds great. I'd love someone to like be on call if I have any of these questions or something like that. Um, and just kind of go from there. Cool. That's, that's great. And I, I guess if you've got any ideas and you're listening to this, drop something in the comments. Cause yeah, this that'd is, be great. Uh, an, uh, yeah, Maybe so you can, Matt, you can implement it in your software too. Like just make exactly. it easy for, for them, yeah, yeah. uh, you Absolutely. know, to use you guys. Let's make it easy for you. Um, but yeah, I want to be respectful of your time. You've given up so much and it's, uh, it's been, it's been awesome. But I guess one final question is, um, you gave us a great, um, book recommendation on recurring revenue service plans is there any resources that you point people to um you know videos books anything like that um on recurring revenue um there's this guy named tien uh so he was the he is a ceo he founded a company called zora which is just like a recurring billing system similar to paddle just different parts of the market different pros and cons they wrote a book called Subscribed. It's a really good introduction to just subscriptions in general. Like he goes really basic because what they tried to do is, and they are successful at it, is they go into like Ford and they're like, hey, Ford, you obviously have sold you know physical goods for a long time, but you should sell some sort of subscriptions, not just a subscription to a car, but like other services, right? And so it's, it's really good at like kind of describing the why, what, you know, works with your business. It's a really good introduction to that. The paddle and Profwell blogs are really good with subscriptions, like all the stuff about cancellation flows and retention and pricing. I've been publishing on that stuff for like 10 years now. Um, a lot of it's in the context of like online subscription businesses or subscription e-commerce companies, but most of the lessons are applicable. So if you squint a little bit and kind of apply it to you, like there'll be a lot of value there. Those are probably the two resources. The subscribed book is a really good introduction. Also, there's this there's this woman named Robbie Baxter, B-A-X-T-E-R. Um, she does a podcast. It's gonna be it's gonna be lost on me. It's um it's like subscription. It's got it's got subscription in the name. Robbie Baxter, R-O-B-B-I-E Baxter, as I spelled it before. Um, she's got a podcast where she just kind of explores the subscription world. So she gets a little broader. It's not just, you know, software, not just this. So she's got some good, good introductory stuff there and some deeper stuff as well. Cool. We'll find it and drop a link to it. But um yeah, thank thank you, thank you very much. I can certainly attest to the um Profit World Paddle. Um, stuff that particularly you put out being really valuable there will be some other tech businesses i'm sure listen to this as well so um definitely follow that information also they can follow you on 
Twitter's a big one for you. That's yep. Um, big... I'm just Paticus, P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, or I have. Uh, I haven't really done it recently, but I don't. LinkedIn messages are kind of terrible. Um, like I get a lot of spam. Um, but you can also just email me, pc at paticus.com. Like feel free to hit me up. Um, I'm, I'm Hopefully you got the vibe. I'm always trying to be helpful. So like if you have a... like. I got nothing to sell you if you're a, if you're a, you know, an HVAC shop or something like that. So I'm not going to sell you. I'll just be like, Hey, here's some thoughts and stuff like that. Um, I do have a podcast I'm starting. That's like a Q and a style podcast where you can submit questions and you know, um, I, I can answer them. Um, it's just kind of a gives and gets with my time, but, um, yeah. So if you want a question answered or, or you, we don't have to do the podcast either. I'm bad at sales as you clearly can see. Uh, no, I don't value, right? so, uh, what's yeah, that yeah, podcast yeah. going to be called? Uh, high output hotline. So basically, uh, yeah. And it, the idea is, um, I don't know. I, again, going back to, uh, sounding like a big shot now, uh, you know, I, I, you know, so I, you know, sold a business for, you know, over $200 million. So like, you know, it, it, it changes, it changes things like dramatically in terms of my personal life. And so it's, uh, you know, I, I, I normally would get on the phone and I was getting on the phone, but now with that being kind of in the ether, all of a sudden I'm saying the same advice, but I get so much more response because there's this, oh, he sold the company, therefore he's successful, which, you know, is kind of, you know, a nice commentary on life. But I was just trying to find a way that, you know, I didn't, um, you know, I could still be super helpful, but also like, you know, get a little bit of a back and forth. And it's kind of funny. Like, I don't know if you should leave this part in because it's interesting. Um, it, it's kind of funny. Like I used to give it in a very cynical way. You start to realize like how much you were giving and how little you were getting in return because, You'd be like, oh, like, like it. Oh, here's this free option. We just do this through this podcast. I'll do extra work besides just giving you an email response, and I'll actually like put together some thoughts. And people are like, ah, I just don't know if I want it out there. And I'll be like, oh, we don't, we don't have to have any anonymized information. Oh, can't you just get on a call and like help me? And I'm like, you know. And then I'm like, well, here's, you know, here are my rates, you know, to get on the <laughs> call. And then they're like, ah, oh, you know. And no one, no one's been, you know, mean about it, but. I think it's just kind of funny how uh, I start trying to charge quote unquote people for, for my time. And uh, you know, it's, it's getting an interesting response. Well, I think it'd be well worth it. And um, thank you very much for giving up so much of your time to help oh, 100%. so many people today. Uh, it's been yeah, awesome. Yeah. Thank awesome. You. See ya.